Hi, I'm Suparna Goswami, Associate Editor with Information Security Media Group. I am joined by Professor David Lacey, who is Managing Director at IDK. We will talk about the role of behavioral biometrics in combating internal fraud. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. So David, just to give our audience a bit of context, please tell us a bit about ID Care and your role in it. Yeah, so ID Care is a community support service specifically focused on helping individuals who have had their account or personal or credential information compromised or misused by fraudsters and cyber criminals. We work with those victims, helping them navigate what is often a very complex response system and my role in the organisation is Managing Director. So David, what are the kind of fraud incidents uh, that you are tracking or you are seeing uh, is in the rise now? Yeah, sure. There's a lot of different fraud types that are growing, particularly during this time of the pandemic. So we're seeing telephone scams and SMS or mobile phone-based scams, phishing emails, reporting to be from government that might be offering its citizens advice or support in relation to the pandemic. Uh, so that's growing, particularly during these times, and we're seeing a lot of people fall victim to these scams by providing or being deceived to provide their personal account and credential information, including credit card details. We're seeing across the globe, certainly access to people's savings, life savings or superannuation funds, also growing in prevalence. The disconnect we're seeing with people largely transitioning and working from home and not having the benefit of having somebody sit next to them like their work colleague and saying, hey, is that email right? Does that look right to you? So we're seeing people that may not have fallen victim to scams and phishing. Okay, so you said phishing. Since fraud has increased all the more now thanks to people working from home, I wanted to check with you, how can organisations play a proactive role in staying ahead of fraudsters, especially the ones from within the company? Yeah, it's, it's a constant battle. It's one that the organisations who are doing it quite well will attack it from multiple perspectives. So at the centre of a lot of, lot of these crimes, the person who's being deceived, it's the person who clicks on an email or answers the phone call or, or thinks that they're responding to an email from their boss and doing a good thing. And, and scarily for the studies that have looked at uh, phishing simulation and, and counter phishing campaigns in testing staff. The results are telling us uh, in the research that some of the hit rates are around 3 to 6% of recipients are believing the phishing simulation email when it comes in. So if you're a multinational company that hires 10,000 people, then 3 to 6%, a lot of email uh, inboxes that may well be compromised. And so how do you prevent that? How do you how do you respond to that as a corporate? Well, it's not taking one approach; it's taking multiple approaches. So, it, and it starts really from from day one in educating staff about cybersecurity and and the controls and expectations that you have about staff. It's it's creating a culture where staff don't feel afraid to ask. Uh, for help and to ask their colleague, hey, does this look right? It's a culture that should be supportive of, of allowing staff to raise raise their hand and, and feel confident that they can express concerns if they're seeing behaviours that might not align with, with what organisations expect of their colleagues. The good ones we're seeing a lot now are saying to staff, hey, we don't actually allow you to use your work email for personal online application enrollment or engagement. So we're seeing a lot of what we call unknown misuse events. So that's where people are ringing ID Care from all over the world and they're saying, hey, I've noticed that someone's got a credit card in my name or I've set up a bank account in my name. 
but I have no idea how the compromise happened. And it might be that they've had nothing to do with the compromise. It might be a data breach. And if it is a data breach, it might be a breach of, of a social media account or some other online account or a game account where they've used their work email address to register for that account. And they've used the same password as their work email account. And the crooks have worked this out. I've gone, oh, great. Well, now I can quickly sniff out online where else that combination of password and username is used for that person. And they're getting access that way as well. So good organisations are saying to staff, hey, listen, work is your work email. We really don't want you to use it for personal applications as well. So you spoke about anti-corruption measures. I wanted to understand from you, because the other day we were talking about behavioural biometrics. How is behavioural biometrics evolving? I understand that organisations have not fully figured it out in far, as far as implementation is concerned. Since you are a thought leader in this space, what are some fundamental mistakes you are seeing organisations making while implementing the entire process of behavioural biometrics? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I think not understanding what the capability can give you and how that capability uh, can work within your own work environment and fundamental mistakes that we've seen. Understanding where the templated data or information is about a particular biometric that's being measured can then be validated with other transactions. So things that we're starting to see work really well is behavioural biometrics around online application forms. So uh, where an organisation's capturing how people enter and fill out form data. So for most people, you won't cut and paste your name in an online form because we know our name and we can just type it. So what we're seeing evolve in the anti-fraud or, or the counter-fraud space, technologies that can assist organisations to identify a lot of online-related application fraud where these biometrics are being captured and they don't equate to what they would typically expect from a given customer or even their address or phone number. So for those that are working it out well, they're asking themselves a fundamental question as to what does this technology offer us in terms of how we're doing business and seeing whether it can apply within that business context. And if it doesn't, are there things that could change that could allow it to apply? And if that's the case, does the benefit outweigh the cost of doing so? And I think a lot of people are jumping into this idea of, of behavioural biometrics and thinking it is another solution. So you're speaking about organisations should understand basically the value that, uh, that they're getting out of behavioural biometrics, right? So how, what are some points that they need to keep in mind while assessing this, that how do they know that whether they are getting the right value vis-a-vis uh, -vis the cost that they have incurred while implementing this technology? Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that should be asked. I think one question should be asked is, are you collecting the data to start with? And if you're not collecting the data around the biometric that you're wanting to measure, then how would you go about doing it? Would the customer or the employee that you're collecting that data from respond in a particular way because you're doing that? So, so it's not just the technologies, the solution and outcome. It's obviously the participation in using the solution. Costs are associated with maybe trialling these technologies on a sample and seeing what the results might show you uh, is good business practice anyway. Those that are doing the try before you buy and, and, and doing small sample tests. There's a there's a big push in a lot of countries around the world in, in the direction of, of a digital identity. So, so India has obviously, I think, one of the world's most populous digital identity regimes. We're seeing it certainly down here in Australia with a lot of state governments uh, pushing digital driver licences. Uh, New Zealand's done the same. They're looking at Estonia and going, well, that's the case study we need to be, but it's a completely different jurisdiction, different approach. So if you're an organisation that's thinking about these things, another question for you is, are there other anchor points to that 
biometric that I'm capturing that's outside the boundary of my organisation that can help me validate what I know about this customer and, and how much do the laws around privacy and the consent that I get from the customer or the employee enable me to achieve that. So naturally, it's not just a business operational risk consideration and an economic consideration, but there's also a very very key and, and considered legal risk. So David, one thing I wanted to understand from you is when you have data from behavior biometrics that needs to be analyzed. So you have your security team, the CISOs, and you have your fraud team. So who are the ones who analyze that typically? Yeah, I guess, I guess it depends on what the trigger point is in terms of something that does require greater analysis. For some document issuers like driver license issuers that are issuing digital driver licenses and capturing biometrics during that process. There is, it's a really great question is the intersection between the cybersecurity team and the fraud team, the technologists and those that might have an investigative background and not so much the technical proficiency. I don't think anyone's resolved that challenge. I think it's, it's, it's certainly a, a very contemporary question. We've seen it work in both areas. There is this concept in, in certainly a lot of the research, contemporary research now around this subject of kind of a super user, the user that can see things because of a, a cognitive predisposition, predisposition that they have or a, an element that they have in their, the workings of their brain that they can spot things that perhaps others can't. So that's some of the literature that we're seeing coming out of Europe now. So we might find in the future that it doesn't sit within, within either team, you know, that there might be the need for organisations to consider uh, specialist behavioural team. Sure. So if today my organisation or any organisation for that matter, the fraud team decides, okay, we need to implement behavioural biometrics. So can you explain our uh, audience here from how do they start this process of deployment? Yeah, I think the deployment all, all, always should start with an understanding of what they need. You know, what, what is it that they're trying to address in terms of either the risk uh, or the transaction or the amount of money they might be losing or some other type of indicator that says that there is a genuine need to explore these things. And I think, I think that's, that's something that's consistent with, with any deployment of any capability. So that might require organisations to look further afield because they're new technologies and it's a new thing being considered and to see how others have succeeded or how others have failed and why they've failed. So I think that's a really important part of it. I think I think any good any good organization will do a privacy impact assessment to understand, all right, what are we looking at here in terms of collection, how are we collecting it, through what channel, how are we storing it, why are we collecting this? And and most privacy regimes around the world will ask the fundamental question is what what's the risk to our organization by not collecting? So it's a different, it's a different angle and consideration than we should be collecting it, you know, sort of business purpose. So that's a that's a very important part of that journey is your privacy impact assessment to fundamentally answer that question. Uh, what's the risk for us not collecting? Which goes a little bit to the need. I mentioned before that I think a try before before you buy is is often an important consideration for organisations to get the best in this capability, and that will also give you some really unique customer insights as to how they might be using or what they might feel or think about using these particular technologies. So that's that's certainly an important part. And then of course you got to get the accountants excited. They're going to want to know well, how much is this thing going to cost? What's it going to save? How many more people or positions are we going to need to actually service this capability? And what does that look like in terms of the financial model and projection? So, so there's not a lot of difference between this capability and other capabilities that organisations will want to impose or implement in terms of fraud control. Thanks a lot, Professor David, for sharing your thoughts on behavioural biometrics and its implementation. Pleasure. You are listening to Professor David Lacey for ISMJ. This is Supernavos 1.